God's word for us today is from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. It's a piece of the story of Abraham, uh, his initial call from the Lord. So I will read, you can follow along, uh, projected or in the worship folder or in your own Bible, Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the great site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. This is God's word. I'll uh, I'll base a sermon today on the first few verses of that in chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, mostly, the call of Abram. Um, You can follow along. There's notes printed in the worship folder as well. And here we go. You're looking at a picture of two trapeze artists. So circus performers will tell you that trapeze artists have a very special relationship, uh, especially between the two, like you see in this picture, that that are swinging in the air. Uh, there's, that, there's the one trapeze artist who needs to let go of the handle and fly, fling into the air, and then there's twisting and spinning and turning. The name of that trapeze artist, th- this is what circus performers call them, their name is the flyer. Okay? And then the other one who hangs from their knees on a trapeze and they're swinging and they stay there. They stay and right, they're on their knees and their job is to catch the flyer. Guess what their name is? The catcher. Yeah. This can be a good day. All right. So here's the thing though. The, the flyer is taught and trained to do their flipping and their twisting, and then when they reach the peak of their arc, when they're not traveling upward anymore, they are taught to freeze, to be still, and to do nothing. It's the catcher's job to reach out to them and grab their wrists or their ankles or whatever the catcher needs to grab, right, and, and bring the, haul them into safety. The one thing that flyers are taught to never do Ever, ever, ever. The flyer cannot catch the catcher. Or it messes up the operation and they plummet to their death. 
the trapeze artists then train each other and train generations and it takes years to learn these skills, the timing of the swinging, how many twists, how many turns, air velocity, humidity, whatever, you name it. This is a precision art and science and it takes years to perfect, but the one thing that's hardest of all is for the flyer to have implicit trust as they feel like they're plummeting to their death that the catcher's gonna swoop in like an eagle, you know, and catch them and bring them into safety. These trapeze artists are going to teach us something today about God and about our faith and our trust in him. And they're gonna show us through Abraham three things as we look at God who trains us to trust him like Abraham. Three things, that we leave things behind, that we look to the Lord, and that we lead others to trust in the Lord as well. So this whole account begins with uh, chapter 12 and verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, so it's taking us back to a speech that God, a conversation God had with Abram earlier than chapter 12, and it's really opening the narrative in the Bible of Abram, um, also known as Abraham, right? So his given name, the name he grew up with was Abram. That The name basically means daddy. And then God changed his name to Abraham. Abraham basically means big daddy. So he went from daddy to big daddy. Uh, and there's reasons for that that we're going to hear today just in this story and in stories beyond. Uh, the reason that God changed his name to big daddy, to Abraham is that Abraham, I'm going to call him Abraham, even though right now at this point in chapter 12 he's Abram. I'm just used to calling him Abraham, so that's what I'm calling him today. Uh, at this point, Abraham was living a big life. And by that, the Bible means um, not so much that he was a celebrity, though he became very well known, as we'll hear later. Uh, but Abraham talked to God, and Abraham met with angels, and Abraham stood strong in a polytheistic culture, even in his own family, his own culture, his community, his country, were polytheistic, meaning they, they just chose to worship among a buffet of gods, among many different gods. They felt there were many gods out there, and Abraham was, there is one God, he's the Lord, Jehovah, and he stood strong in that belief against his culture. Uh, Abraham has become the father of the three major world religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Moses, when he wrote Genesis, was guided by the Holy Spirit to spend a dozen chapters on Abraham and his life. So why? What makes Abraham rank so high? Why is he big daddy? Two big reasons. Number one, God chose Abraham to be the father of a very special nation, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people. And that nation was special to God because through that particular nation, God brought our Savior, his son Jesus Christ, into the world. They were the, the cradle that gave birth to the Savior. Secondly, uh, Abraham's living a big life because God not only chose Abraham, but God chose to work with Abraham and to deal with Abraham in the same way that God chooses to deal with all sinners of all time. That makes him big for us because if we understand how God deals with Abraham, we're going to understand how God deals 
with sinners with us today. Uh, that's our goal in today's sermon, to see that and understand it. So, the story of Scripture from the first sin in Genesis chapter 3, right? We're not far into the Bible here. We're 12 chapters into the Bible. Last week we read from Genesis chapter 3. Remember that? That was the first sin in the Garden of Eden. And right after the first sin, God promised his son, a savior, who would undo the damage that Adam and Eve had done with sin. And sad to say, Genesis chapter 4 and 5 and 6 through 11, the, the story just gets more and more sad even after God promised a Savior, right? Shortly after God promised that Savior, Cain kills his brother Abel. They spark riots. So like, uh, like riots spreading in a city, God's watching this. Like you and I might watch CNN and see riots happening places, and there's people acting foolishly everywhere out of uh, barbaric behavior, just like Cain acted, and the world's getting more and more wicked, and so God brings it back in by sending the flood and destroying everyone except for Noah and his family. And then God reigns that back in, and then Noah's family grows, and then the world expands, and then everybody gets their own ideas about what's best in their world and how they want to be God, and they try to build the Tower of Babel. And then God reigns it in by, right, by, by intervening and creating all kinds of different languages so they can't communicate with each other and they can't finish the tower. Reigns that in. And then the, it, it expands again, and we have uh, Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they have their family lines. And there's really Shem, the Shem line, the Shemite line, the Semite line is the line of Abraham's family. And that's the family that begins to take the focus for keeping God in human history. And even with that family as the focus, now the Bible tells us in Joshua chapter 24, we learn that Abraham's grandparents and his parents were idol worshipers. They were polytheistic and worshipped all kinds of gods like the rest of the people and the rest of the people that day. So Abraham is in this, in his young days, he's in this idol worshipping family, and then later, after he gets married, we're told that Abraham's wife Sarah can't have children. She's barren. And so now you have these two things. Th this man on whom we're placing our hopes for faith and for God being in the world, Abraham, he's in an idol-worshipping family. Maybe he even worshipped idols himself when he was younger. And when he gets older and marries, he can't have children. There is no hope in the foreseeable future for God being part of the human history of the world. That's the stage that's set for this story. And then God takes care of business. Chapter 12, verse 1. He shows up. He calls Abraham. Go from your country, from your people, and from your father's household to the land I will show you. I added those froms in there because they're in the original Hebrew. Um, the, the English translation didn't put them in there because it probably seems redundant, but there's a, there's a point to that. See, the Hebrew language doesn't have exclamation points to, or, or italics or bold or underline or, or all caps. So the Hebrew language emphasizes things by repeating them. So there's something in the, all those frums strung along when God is saying to Abraham, listen, I need you to get away from this and from this and from this and from this. The, uh, the word there really 
is strong. It's, this is not a casual suggestion from God to Abraham. This is not God brainstorming with Abraham saying, you know, I, what, 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 do you, what do you think about? What, 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 do you, what are your thoughts? Um, you, those of you who are old enough to know the old King James here, the King James here, God says, get thee out! That's it. That's what God was telling Abram here. Get out! Get out of there! Get away from your family. Get away from your country. Get away from your household. This is like emergency responders blitzing to the doors of, of ranchers in North Texas where deadly wildfires are spreading and saying, Get thee out! Leave your ranch, leave your home, leave all your trucks and toys and leave it behind and save your life. And what does typical human nature tell itself when you're in that kind of position and someone says, get thee out? Typical human nature is going to say, well, yeah, but... And, and we minimize... Yeah, I, I, the fi- who, who are you to tell me the fire is going to reach? It's what, it's, I, it, I'm okay. And we rationalize. And, and besides, I, I got all this good stuff. I can't, I can't leave it behind. My ranch, my cattle, my family. My, I, I, I'm not going to. I worked hard for this. God, I'm in a good place. God, I like where I am right now. God, I'm comfortable. God says, get thee out to Abram. And then he says this. Not only does he list everything Abraham should leave behind, but then he says... You're going to go somewhere. So there's a point. You're not only leaving things behind, but there's a place I have for you. And he says, Abram, I'm going to show you later. I'll show you what it is. Okay? And what does human nature do when God says that to us? We say, God, I really think you need to, uh, I think you need to let me in on this. So thanks, God. You're planning something for me. I really like that. It, what? God, I need you to let me know what this is because, you know, we have to check in with my agenda and, and if it doesn't make sense to me, God, yeah, I don't think so much. I, I, you know, God, I need you to let me know what it is. So those are the two things that human nature does when God calls us to leave things behind. We say we don't want to leave. And when God says we should leave, we say, well, then tell me what's up. Tell me where we're going. I want you to see the sin in that kind of attitude and response. Right? It's easy for us to see the foolishness of it. Like, well, yeah, who, who would disagree with God? God knows everything, and he's perfectly loving, and he, and he knows more than you do. That's just silly. Yeah, it's silly, but it's sinful. It's really telling God, God, you know, you're really not that good. And God, you're really not that right. You can't, God, you can't be, not all the time. I'll give you, once in a while you are, but God, you're not, you're not that good and you're not that right. So I tell you what, God, you know what? Why don't you just leave me alone unless you're going to let me control things? Then you can give me your ideas. And God, in his grace, says, no. I'm God and you're not, and this is not how it works. No, I'm not going to leave you alone and do things your way. And that's when Abraham said yes. What is God 
calling you to leave behind that you're not. When God calls us to leave things behind, he's doing it for two reasons. Number one, the thing that he's calling us to leave behind is not good for us. Now, that doesn't mean only evil things. That can actually be something that, in its essence, is something good. It's not hurtful or it's not harmful, it's not wicked. But God, in his wisdom and his love and his desire for us to move on and grow, understands this is not good for us anymore. Like a pacifier is not good for a five-year-old. Okay? A pacifier is not bad, but it's not made for a five-year-old. See, so you may have some good things that you think are good, but they're pacifiers for you. And God says, you've outgrown those things. It's time to move on. I need you to get out of there. Leave them behind. And you're clutching onto it like, no, I want this security blanket the rest of my life. Secondly, God knows that things aren't good for you. He also knows that he has something better for you. He can, he's God. He can see it. He's planning it. He has it there. He has these big blessings waiting for you. And by not leaving things behind, you are not experiencing those big blessings that God is waiting for you because you're not willing to let go of the handle and fly into the midair and stop moving and let him catch you. When you do, God's going to swing you in a new direction, swing you into a new world, and he's waiting to change your life, just like he did for Abraham. Uh, Pastor Timothy Keller uh, we've read some of his books. You've maybe heard of him and, and read them yourself. Uh, he, he makes a really interesting point here. Um, he differentiates in, in J.R.R. Tolkien's writings. You know, the, the big story that Tolkien writes about is this fellowship of the ring. It all focuses on the ring and making sure finding it and, and uh, destroying it. Um, here's what Keller says. It's really interesting. It's a good point. He, he says, the, don't start that series by reading The Hobbit which most of us do. I did. I read The Hobbit first, and, and then I read The Lord of the Rings and then watched it as a movie. Um, he says, for this reason, The Hobbit is a children's story. It's an adventure. It's more like a fairy tale. And, and he said, by adventure, I mean this. It's, it's, a play, it's a journey that you go on and experience it, and then you come back and you pick up your life where you left it off. Uh, that's an adventure. He says that the, fellow, the, the Lord of the Rings, that trilogy, right? That's, that's not an adventure. That's a quest. And a quest, you don't choose. A quest comes to you. And a quest, you don't go on it and come back the same person. You go on the quest and you either die or if you happen to make it back, you're different than you were when you left. You don't just pick up where you left off. A quest kills you or changes you. Discipleship, following God, is not an adventure. It's a quest. It is not a children's story. It is not something where we go find it, we experience it. It's all very comfortable. We just pick up where we want to. And Discipleship, in Jesus' words, kills you. 
the sinful you, right? The you that doesn't want to trust God. Discipleship, in Jesus' words, changes you. It gives you a new life. So when God, God says to you, you know, what I want to ask you to do, I'm, I'm not interested in your approval of what I want to ask you to do. Uh, I'm not interested in, in whether it fits your agenda or not. Discipleship is its own agenda. And what I want to ask you to do, I'm not interested if you think it's a good fit for your life, if, it, if it's your style or not. Discipleship is its own life. Get out of there. Move on, God says. I have something bigger for you, better for you. Can you trust me? I want to change your life. And there's good things waiting, big things, better things. So Abram, this, this little man, with little, his wife couldn't have children. Uh, he, he didn't appear to be really wealthy in his upbringing and his family. Um, he was becoming a big man with a big life. Why? Because God's grace was calling him to it. Because God was opening his arms to Abraham. Um, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, look there, Hebrews um, chapter 11. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of keywords here, but you're not going to get it all unless you're looking at it. So find in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 11. Um, it tells the New Testament in numerous places commends Abraham for his faith and for how he responded to how God was leading him. God was training him to trust. And so here's Hebrews chapter 11. I can go verse 8, then 11, then 17. It says this, By faith Abraham, when called to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, Abraham was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. Dial back and says, how, how did he do this? By faith. God gave him a specific promise and he trusted it. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Remember that? God said, the miracle son came, God said, kill him. Put him on the altar, sacrifice him. And Abraham was ready to do that because he had faith. He believed that God would somehow work it all out. By faith, Abraham made those actions and decisions. He could do all that because he looked to the Lord. But the reason he looked to the Lord is because first, the Lord looked to him. First, the Lord took initiative and came to Abraham with this, this little guy who was becoming big daddy, came to him with big promises. Uh, here they are, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. God speaking to Abraham. Count the I wills here, right? I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. I skipped a couple phrases in those verses. We'll get them later. But the... Abraham needed to be strong in his faith. He needed to be confident that he could act and go forward, that he could leave things behind. God gave him that confidence by equipping him with all the resources, with everything that Abraham needed to believe. The Lord gave it to him in this package of powerful promises. So Abraham trusted in the Lord 
Because the Lord made promises. Abraham was willing to leave it all behind because the Lord made promises. Abraham said yes to God because God made promises. Abraham was able to follow discipleship as a quest and not an adventure because God made promises. Does God make you promises? All kinds of them. Everywhere, all the time. Big promises. That means you can do what God asks you to do. That means you can look to the Lord because the Lord first looks to you. Um, When we trust in God, our human hearts tend to tell us, this is too risky. Darren, you're not in control here. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. This is uncomfortable. This is dangerous. Too much risk. And then sometimes people try to explain this by saying, as believers, we should have blind faith. God doesn't ask you to have a blind faith. Blind faith has no promises to grab onto. Faith, Christian faith, the kind of faith that Abraham had, wasn't a blind faith at all. It was a faith that landed squarely on God's promises. And so when God calls you and you don't know exactly what's on the other side, he's already made a promise. And so it's not unmanaged risk, it's managed risk. As long as you're trusting God to be the manager. Now let's look at the individual promises in this, in this powerful package here that God gives to Abraham and we're going to see how he responds, all right, in verses 2 and 3. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Okay, so there he's focusing on this one fact, that Abraham and Sarah will have a son. You don't become a nation without becoming a family. You don't become a family without having a son. This is God saying to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to have a little boy bouncing on your knee, and that boy is going to have a little boy, and you're going to have grandson, you're going to have grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and they're going to get married and have more children. And Abraham, you're going to be a big, big family, big daddy. You're going to have a great family, and it's going to be a great nation. That's the promise here. It focuses on on the population. They did become a great nation. Remember when the, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt and Pharaoh and the Egyptian leaders were intimidated, were scared by the Israelites? Why? Because they, they, were, they were breeding. They were becoming populous. They were like rabbits. Uh, they were everywhere. And, and that shows this promise coming true. Just that one example. There's others too. Second promise, I will bless you. God had already made, that's kind of an open-ended promise, but God had already promised land and promised a growing family, people. And so commentators tend to believe that what this focuses on, because of the nature of those words in Genesis at that time, on material blessings, on God telling Abraham, you're, you're going to become a wealthy rancher. You're going to have more cattle, Abraham, than you know what to do with. And you're going to collect precious metals and have gold and silver, and you'll be able to use those in making treaties and bartering. Um, Abraham, you're going to become a rich, rich man. I promise it. Later, 
the Bible says that Abraham did actually use his wealth. I mean, in, in our current terms, we'd say he became a millionaire. And he used his wealth. He interacted with kings. And he had an influence on other nations. He was that powerful with his wealth to make treaties and to barter with them. So that promise came true. Number three, I will make your name great. This is really, this is neat. That word great in the Old Testament is only used for God when it talks about whose name is great. That word right there is only used for God except in two instances. One is King David in 2 Samuel. The other is here. God doesn't use that term lightly. And so here he says to Abraham, I will make your name great. His name, your name is your reputation. And God is saying, Abraham, you're going to have a reputation. You're going to be well known. And how is Abraham well known? Well, he became known as a wealthy rancher, but it's more to it than that, right? Abraham has become the father of three world religions. Abraham is a well-known name today. He became the father of the Jewish race and of all believers. Uh, Abraham sure did. His name has become great because he trusted in God and he looked to the Lord. Finally, number four, God says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. So other people... When they would identify themselves with Abraham, and that may have meant coming over to his place for dinner and hearing his story. And it can also mean having the same faith that Abraham had. When other people identified themselves with Abraham and his God, they would find blessing. When they rejected Abraham and his God, God is simply saying, then they they will find curse, one or the other. Uh, that's so so it, there's a relationship with Abraham and his faith that anyone else in the world, including us, can have and be blessed. So, I want to go to the New Testament again. Go to Romans chapter 4. Okay? So, and again, the point is this. As the New Testament talks about Abraham in the Old Testament, it's always talking about two things. Abraham's faith and what Abraham's faith was in. And remember, God deals with Abraham the same way he deals with every sinner. And so, the same is true for you and me. Our faith is great when it believes in God's great promises. So Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse... Let's do 20 to 22, okay? Verses 20 through 22. Abraham did not waver through unbelief, Regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. See, that's more about God than about Abraham. He was persuaded by God's power. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Six times. In God's call to Abraham, six times, God says, I will. One time, God gives a command to Abraham, go, get out. God dealt with Abraham primarily in terms of promise, not demand. God trained Abraham to trust 
And that's how God trains you to trust too, by dealing with you primarily in terms of promise. Not demand, not disappointment, not disagreement, promise. And God can deal with you in that way for one reason. That all of the promises that God gives to you in all of your faith, and all of the promises God gave to Abraham and all of his faith, all hinged on one specific promise. The promise of a miracle son. Without that promise, there ain't no family. Without a family, there ain't no nation. And without that family and nation, there's no wealth, and there's no reputation, and there's no greatness. All of the other promises hinge on the promise of a miracle son that Abraham and Sarah fully knew they couldn't have. Pay attention to that because God's promises to us hinge in the same way. So we ask, God, how can I believe so big? God, how can, I, how can I trust you more? God, how can I find those blessings in my life that I know you have waiting for me and I haven't experienced them yet because of me, not because of you? God, how can I be a big believer? By the way God is dealing with Abraham here, he has your answer by believing first and foremost in the biggest promise of all, the promise of a son. Right? So God is telling Abraham, live with faith in the son and everything else will come true. So Abraham believed. Abraham believed in the miracle son and the miracle son was given in the person of Isaac, Abraham's son. And then God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, to literally to kill him because that's what God wanted. And he was willing to do that, to make Isaac a sacrifice. He, he believed so much in the promise of his son, he believed that Isaac would not stay dead, that he would return to life, that he would resurrect. He believed in the promise of a son. There's another miracle son who was given to our world. He was born of a virgin. No one would ever look at her, at Mary, and say, oh, you're going to have a baby. But she did, had this miracle child, and that's our Savior Jesus. And God the Father asked for that, his own son, that Savior Jesus, to be a sacrifice too. Except there was no ram in the thicket to be a substitute for that sacrifice. Jesus, the miracle son, actually became a sacrifice that his father sent him to be sacrificed for our sins, to pay our debt, so that we could be forgiven. And he's the promised son. All God's promises, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all God's promises are yes in Christ. That means they all, everything in your life hinges on the Son, and on you believing in the Son. 
Abraham not only had a miracle son and not only believed in that promise, but believed in the promise of the ultimate miracle son. Abraham believed in Jesus. That's what the New Testament says, and it was credited to him as righteousness, it said. Abraham believed in his miracle son and in the miracle son that would come from his family in Jesus Christ. Jesus then would speak later about Abraham. In, in John chapter 8, here's what Jesus said to Jewish leaders. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it. He's right. He believed in it. He believed it would come. He saw it and was glad. Then Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Abraham is big. Jesus is bigger. Abraham is the father. Jesus is the savior. Abraham counted the stars almost. He couldn't count them all. Jesus created the stars, counts them all, and knows each by name. Abraham left things behind. Jesus left the glory of heaven behind when he came to earth for you. Abraham went on a journey to a land filled with pagan Canaanites. Jesus came on a journey to a world filled with sinners. Abraham interacted with those pagan Canaanites. Jesus died for them, all of them. How did Daddy become Big Daddy? By the big promises of a big son. How does your faith become bigger? By the big promises of a big son in Jesus. So I have to say, um, I've said it a few times during the sermon today, and I'm going to say it again now. Abraham is the father of faith for the three major world religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Here's how Christ, this is, right here is where Christianity is different. Is that um, we don't look to Abraham to give us things in our religion. We look to Abraham's son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't we're not saved by Abraham's DNA. We're not saved by Abraham's faith. We're not saved by doing Abraham's good works. We're saved just like Abraham was by believing in the promise of the Son and everything else, everything else comes true. Um, not just for you, but for others then who are going to see Jesus through you. So this is the last point. We leave things behind. We look to the Lord, and now we lead others just like Abraham did to the Lord too. Again, Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, I'm picking out a couple key phrases here. God says to Abraham, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Why does God bless you? Why does he give you a climate-controlled home so that you're not soaking wet in the rain all weekend? Why did he let your car start this morning? Most of you, oh, Richard, you said you had trouble getting your truck started, but event, I, I know you got here. You, the trailer's here. You're here. And you kicked me. I kicked it. Okay. Um, why does he let you spend time with your family? Why does that 
paycheck get deposited into your bank account? Why aren't any of us starving to death? Why did God give us this awesome, huge, too huge, but great facility to worship in every Sunday and give us good friends here at this church who, who let us have it? Why does God give us property and the funds to be able to build a church and call a preschool director? Why? Why does he give us all that? Why does he bless us? Why did God the Father bless his own son when Jesus was on this earth? Why did he give him things? Why did he say at his baptism and at his transfiguration, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Why did God the Father send angels from heaven to strengthen Jesus when he was being tempted in the desert and in the garden of Gethsemane? Why did the Father give his own son a home on this earth and parents and a family of his own? Why, why does God bless us and why does God bless his own son? So that his son could be a blessing to others, use those blessings to bless others, and so you and I can use those blessings to bless others too. Right? God says to Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So you want to live a big life? You want to learn to trust God more? To, be, to have your agenda mesh with his agenda more often, more days of the week? Then, then look to the Lord and after you look to the Lord, lead others to him and be willing to, to share your blessings. Be willing to be a blessing who blesses others. When you volunteer at our church, you are, you are blessing others with your blessings. Thank you. When you give financially to our mission, to our cause, to what we're trying to do, you are, you're blessing others with your blessings. When you take the time to, to send a card of encouragement when someone's father dies. You're using your blessings to be a blessing to others. When you visit someone who hasn't been in church for a while, when you touch base with them and just send them a text, when you, when you say thank you to the person who's bringing snacks or playing the piano or singing for the day, you're... You're using your blessings to be a blessing to others and you're fulfilling what God wants from us through Abraham. And so this is where faith, faith in the Son, faith in God's promises, this is where believe in our discipleship process now, listen to this, this is where believe becomes belong. I interact with others, I, I'm concerned for them, I, I serve them, and becomes become I use my blessings to expand my horizons and my ability to serve and love others. I become better at it and becomes beyond where we go out and we use those blessings to go out into our community and in your own personal world like Abraham became a blessing to the entire world, all nations. Daddy became big daddy. How, do you, how does your faith become big? Remember that God deals with you like he dealt with Abraham. God chooses you, 
And God works in you through his Son like all other sinners on this planet. So act on God's promises today. Leave things behind. Look to the Lord and lead others to the Lord too. And you'll be acting just like your big daddy. Amen.